Welcome to Insights, a production of JP Morgan Asset Management. Insights is an audio podcast that provides perspectives on the opportunities and uncertainties facing investors today. Today's episode is on our fixed income assumptions and is for institutional and professional investors. I'm Maria Ryan, a client advisor within the UK institutional business, and with me today are Tushka Maharaj, global strategist in the multi-asset solutions team, and Jonathan Griggs, our head of applied research in the fixed income and currency and commodities group. Welcome to Insights. Thanks for having us. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Can you briefly talk us through the process of how you came up with the fixed income assumptions? The fixed income assumptions are very rooted in our macro views. So our growth and inflation forecasts across developed markets form the root and foundation for the assumptions. As you can imagine, there is a strong theoretical relationship between long-run nominal growth and uh, long-term yields. And actually, in, in the publication, we show a chart of that relationship through time, and it has held up reasonably well pre-financial uh, crisis. In terms of how these are used directly for the fixed income assumptions, how growth and inflation fit into the forecasts, I'd say there are three sort of effects from lower growth and sort of a slower global growth environment and how they affect the assumptions. Three key points. One, uh, they result in lower equilibrium rates with extended normalization across all the currencies we're looking at. The second is cash rates are close to inflation over the uh, investment horizon, implying zero real returns at equilibrium and negative on average over the forecast horizon. And the third is that returns from long-dated bonds are close to cash at the forecast horizon. So thanks, Tushka. That's great in terms of the theory, but how does that actually affect the equilibrium assumptions in practice? So, for example, for the US, we lowered our cash assumption by 25 basis points. The cash rate's now at 225, and that is partly a reflection of the lower growth. We cut the a real GDP growth assumption for the US by 25 basis points, and that feeds directly into the cash assumption, as well as inflation. Inflation's expected to be to 0.25%, which is equal to the cash rate assumption. The other uh, aspect of how the economic views translate into the assumptions is in the 10-year yield. Because of the lower growth and sort of subdued global growth picture, this has brought down our 10-year yield assumption for the US. That's now at 350, so a 50 basis point reduction. But more importantly, we lengthened the normalization period. So before we had, I think, a one and a half year period for normalization for the 10-year. But one of the key lessons we learned over the last 12 months is the globalized nature of long-dated yields. That's partly a function of policy, but also a function of the globalization of financial markets over the last few years. And that has affected uh, the 10-year yield assumption. We brought the normalization period for the U.S. much more in line with other developed markets. Okay, actually, well, that's a, a very important point, the, the globalization aspect of this, because um, quite often you end up focusing on the U.S. and that process, you know, is going to be sort of probably in some investors' eyes complicated by the transition to President Trump-elect and some of the changes in market expectations. In a way, actually, when I look at the profile now for the rates going forward out to the 10-year horizon and the um, normalization process, including the Fed tightening trajectory, Actually, in terms of where the market is now beginning to price that relative to what we actually had penciled in for the long term capital market assumptions is not too far away. And so uh, I think unless you start to think that this transition 
is going to change long-term growth assumptions radically. It's probably early days to start thinking that the long-term rate of assumption for 10-year treasuries at 3.5% is is perhaps too low. That's something we'll have to think about in due course, but for the here and now, probably it's still okay. And of course, importantly, from a global perspective, actually, this isn't changing the environment very much. You know, we have factored in a muted growth trajectory in Japan and Europe and the UK, and obviously a prolonged period of low rates in conjunction with that. Also, it's important to recognise that China is a very important influence in these forecasts. China, in many measures, is now arguably between 10 and 20% of the global economy, depending on how you measure it, and continuing to grow. If the long-term growth assumption, which is an important building block of this uh, for China, is steadily declining, then that's a large part of the world where that's acting as a sort of a, a bit of a drag, you know, compared to where we were three, four, five years ago. And that process is still unfolding. So I think, you know, to dovetail into what you said, Fusca, you know, obviously the global angle really is sort of a factor in sort of anchoring these long-term projections. And so what about these assumptions when you're thinking about credit markets and emerging markets, which is obviously a big driver? Now, obviously, from a credit and an EM perspective, actually, when you look at the change in the expected average returns over this 10-year horizon, they are down approximately 100 basis points. And I think the return for longer dated you know, government bonds are down about 50. So in some respects, you could argue that that's quite a material change. But that reflects a couple of things. Firstly, obviously, uh, the underlying duration aspect is important. And so obviously, the underpinning, which is sovereign yields, you know, we've adjusted lower. But also, of course, you know, with the persistent quantitative easing that we've had, which has been driving, you know, returns in these markets, low average spreads in, you know, investment grade credit, high yield credit, EM, are below what we perceive to be long term sustainable equilibriums. We've also factored in some reversion back to those equilibriums, which obviously reduces some of the expected return. So in our computations, when you factor that in, it does lead to a reduction. Um, of 100 basis points in those long-term assumptions. However, the absolute level of those assumptions is still high, and hence we still think of them as being a bright spot because on a risk-adjusted perspective in particular, you're still looking at healthy returns over core fixed income. And I think in the portfolio construction process, when you're looking at equities and bonds together, they still come out as a valuable asset. Another point to add in terms of the uh, bright spots in fixed income Uh, Inflation-linked bonds, um, Mm -hmm. especially in the US, from our forecasts, do look more attractive. And obviously, post the uh, recent events on Trump election, for example, the reflation theme has gained momentum. So while some of that's in the price now, we still see uh, benefits for holding inflation protection. So another modest bright spot in fixed income. And I, yeah, I think that's a very important point mm. um, because that's something which actually hasn't been on the agenda <laughs> for a while, for a very long time, and I think is worthy of you know emphasis yeah. uh, in the post-crisis environment. Disinflation or deflation has been the theme, and obviously we've gradually lowered forecasts, and indeed they are reflected in mm. the forecasts over the last two or three years in the LTCMA process. But actually, arguably going forward, you know, with the market having priced that in, you're now seeing some retracement. Mm. So, Tushka, you said that the 10-year yield is close to cash returns. So what's causing that erosion in duration premium? Yeah, this is one of the key uh, messages from this year's LTCMAs, are that we're finally getting to the point where long-term returns across the 10-year 
uh, the 10-year point are very close to cash. And I'd say that this has been a, a process that's been gradually happening since the financial crisis. As yields have been ratcheting down, expected returns uh, obviously have fallen. I'd say a lot of factors are contributing to this erosion of duration premia. Uh, one is obviously quantitative easing, the unconventional or the legacy of QE programs from central banks, which essentially means that we've mortgaged returns from the future, have kept yields below their pre-crisis averages, which means negative real returns uh, are on a forward-looking basis. The other sort of structural reasons for low yields and therefore reduced duration premia are things like low productivity. We talked about uh, low global growth expectations. That's coming from low productivity, weak demographic profiles. And on top of that, post-crisis, we've had this exacerbation of low yields coming from regulation. So those technical reasons have depressed term premia and duration premia. Uh, We're now forecasting over the next 10 to 15 years that that that, uh, erosion or or having duration premia close to zero across these markets uh, is very likely. Now, you could see some factors unwind uh, in the near term, but on a sort of 10 to 15 year horizon, the demographic profile still remains in place, that, that headwind for duration. The fact that productivity... It could You could have a near-term boost, but on a sort of 10 to 15-year horizon, seeing a huge adjustment on that. I think that's a question we need to ask ourselves. Is there room for that productivity to come back? Um, but at least the evidence up to now has been, uh, has been weakness there. Yes, and you know, I think the productivity mm. thing is a very interesting angle because, as we've already discussed, one of the big underpinnings for the forecast or the building blocks has to be a view on long-term growth, inflation and what have you. And obviously potential growth you know, is driven by you know, basically population growth, the demographic element of that, but also um, productivity growth. And that's been the big mystery. And there is a two-way debate around that. Ob- you know, obviously within our assumptions, we have taken the view that productivity will maybe not be as weak as the weakest levels that we've seen recently, but will certainly remain weak relative to history. But there is a school of thought around that, you know, perhaps um, GDP is mismeasured and that actually we will find in due course that productivity has been stronger than we thought. Um, And there's a whole sort of industry around that in terms of sort of calculations and and what have you. Or it could be that actually, you know, there is an underappreciation of innovation and that perhaps actually if we've gone through a period of weak capital expenditure post the crisis, a a stimulation of that could have significant effects on long-term growth, which I guess brings you back also to the Trump uh, policies which may be enacted next year. Um, Obviously remains to be seen exactly what gets enacted. But, you know, one of the key debates is going to be does that actually lift the potential growth rate? You know, at the moment, obviously, we're assuming not very much, but that could be wrong. So you talked about the bright spots being credit and inflation. Could you tell me what your views are on emerging markets and compare it maybe to pre-crisis levels? Well, ahead of the crisis, obviously EM, high yield actually as well, all all these spread markets were the centre of attention and obviously returns were were very strong. Subsequent to that, obviously after the initial bounce of volatility and significant uh, underperformance, then obviously with QE, those returns of you know, improved dramatically and stabilised. The key issue going forward is what kind of environment should one expect 
you know, on that 5 to 10, 15 year view relative to previous benchmarks of non-crisis periods, I guess you could, you could say. Certainly our view is that whilst these sectors will be bright spots, as, we, as we've called them, the returns relative to the pre-crisis period will be lower. Not massively lower, but, but certainly lower. And I think that reflects a, you know, a combination of, uh, of issues, one of which is you know, valuation uh, relative to where we've been in the past, but also actually the underlying sort of growth environment and what's reasonable to expect from these assets. Obviously, running up to the great financial crisis, trend growth rates you know, in the emerging world were very high, and there was a lot of support for that, mainly coming from China. But actually, if we're now in an environment where that sort of EM, DM growth alpha, as our EM colleagues like to call it, is now structurally lower, it might still be positive, but it's lower and perhaps diminishing further into the future as well, then obviously it's reasonable to expect that the sort of equilibrium returns for these assets will be, will be weaker. So moving on to the next topic, how did Brexit, which was obviously before the assumptions were made, affect your number? Now, I know there were some conversations around currency, for example. And of course, since the Trumps win, the expecting shift from monetary policy to fiscal policy, you've talked a little bit about some of it. But how do you think this is going to affect the assumptions going forward? Uh, maybe we'll talk about uh, Brexit first. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> two we, big topics. <laughs> yeah, two, two, two big topics, exactly. So we... Uh, took the cut for the data as of the 30th of September, um, um, which obviously, um, you know, the data uh, cut had included some of the Brexit um, effect in there, but that was the starting points for yields. I'd say in terms of our long-run forecasts for growth, um, Brexit did affect our long-term growth assumption. We reduced it by 25 basis points. Just the uncertainty on how Brexit would play out, the prolongation of negotiations, the uncertainty on trade negotiations, uncertainty on population, you know, immigration, all of these factors affect the potential growth rate. So that brought down uh, our GDP assumption modestly at, say, 25 basis points on the long term. And that, that you know, affected our cash and 10-year assumptions on an almost equal basis, reduced the cash rate assumption from what we had thought before Brexit uh, by 25 basis points, which left us with, you know, the cash rate around 225, so very much in line with inflation before we had thought we would have cash slightly above, above inflation, which has been history in the UK. For the 10-year yield, uh, we uh, reduced that modestly. We started with the assumption, assuming the UK remained in, mm-hmm. in the EU uh, at 325, uh, that was reduced to 3%, and we've re- increased the normalisation period. I'd say uh, the UK was in between in terms of its rate normalisation. Uh, over 2015, so last year, it had a normalization path that was closer to the US. But the lesson we learned over the last 12 months, and I'd say even arguably before Brexit, was that the UK normalization path had to be closer linked to Europe in the sense that Europe is its main trading partner. There should be more of a, a link there. So we were already transitioning towards lengthening the uh, normalization in the UK. I'd say Brexit has has uh, sort of supported that argument even more. Uh, and so we've increased the normalization period to over seven years for the, uh, uh, for the, uh, for the long end of the curve. I think actually the currency, mm. you know, has been perhaps of all the sort of currency-related assumptions yeah. <laughs> going into the LT CMAs this time around, obviously sterling was the most controversial mm. because 
obviously you saw the reaction. It's a classic example of what we're trying to do with this project in a way and in, in trying to give sort of uh, a good quality, a stable view on how we see things on a five and ten year horizon because clearly when you have an event like that in the short term, the temptation is to radically change mm -hmm. <laughs> and mark to market in a sense the forecast and that's absolutely what you mustn't do in this particular environment. So hence, you know, we've factored in something, you know, quite modest, reflecting what we think is a change of risk on, on the rate side, as Fisk has articulated there. On the currency side, obviously, we'd already seen a massive movement from, you know, what was a, a 155 to 60 type of level for against the, against the dollar for the pound to the 120 to 130 range as we sort of went through the summer. For many people, there'd be that temptation to lower that forecast even more. The approach we've taken is to say, look, actually, for the information that we now know, if Brexit wasn't happening, we'd be pretty confident saying that the long-term fair value for sterling on a 10-year view was, say, 160, 155, 160. And I think that's what you know has been in in previous years. Clearly, that has been probably lowered by the growth outlook on a relative basis. But the degree to which it's been lowered you know, it, as a fair value concept, it, it probably is quite limited. And so actually embedded in the forecast is, a, at least in the long term, an actual recovery in sterling back up to what is a lower fair value of around 150, say. And that process could take a long time and it doesn't exclude, obviously, in the interim, you know, some, some further weakness. But obviously these forecasts are really about trying to plot a course of where we, where we go to on, on that 10-year horizon. And getting back to the Trump win and the impact on more broadly going forward? I'd say I'd say in the near term, the uh, Trump victory and this sort of re-emphasis of fiscal over monetary policy does affect the starting point we use for our assumptions. But the long-term assumptions uh, should not be affected because they are built on, on a view you're taking over the next 10 to 15 years. Yes, we can see Trump affecting the near-term views, the near-term forecasts. But unless, as Jonathan says, he does something that radically changes the profile for productivity, for example, then it's very hard to justify a, uh, a big change to those long-term anchors that we've built already. I'd say in terms of the starting point, which is affected by Trump, we've had U.S. yields rising over 100 basis points since the date of our cutoff for our projections. That has affected expected returns, for example, for, for the U.S. 10-year yield. But essentially what, what we've seen is that the expected losses that we had forecasted already within the LTCMAs, some of those losses have been brought forward, have already occurred because of the rise in yield. I'd say, again, just to emphasize that point, the starting point has changed, but it does not necessarily force us to change those long-term assumptions. And I think the, the Trump victory, in a way, puts the LTCMAs in a, in a nice context. It, it shows how we build these assumptions. If you had asked us, you know, would we radically change anything today based on a Trump victory, I'd say there would be modest changes, but we wouldn't radically change our framework. The framework still is based on an economic outlook from productivity and labor force participation and labor force growth. So unless you think that uh, labor force participation, lab labor force growth are radically affected over the next 10 to 15 years by the Trump victory, then, then you would adjust your forecasts. But it's hard to have those views today. The one thing that I'd say is important is this focus on fiscal policy. This move away from monetary dominance is important in terms of the long-run forecasts. 
we yet to know, you know, to see the magnitude of this fiscal adjustment, but it does feel like we are close to that turning point in terms of the balance of, of power between fiscal and monetary, and that will affect use in the future. Now, I anticipated that question, and so I actually looked, <laughs> I looked back at uh, the forecast profile in a way that we embedded in to the short part of the curve, actually, because uh, we had the FOMC meeting as well, and they have obviously had their first opportunity to revise their sort of longer term expectations or at least the profile over the next two to three years which are obviously the beginning of our period here and interestingly actually their raised profile which you know is a little bit for next year and a bit more for 2018 is now pretty much in line with what we've embedded in to the forecasts at the beginning of the period so it tells me that you know when you sort of look at the environment and the information that we have at the moment, the assumptions that are embedded in there are still very valid. But to Fusca's point, I mean, the, the interesting thing going forward is if there is enough information accruing next year, which changes people's long-term view radically and justifiably because actually potential growth, which I think we're probably estimating at one and three quarters or something like that in the US embedded in the forecast, actually, you know, in past cycles when... President Reagan came in, it was 3%, you know, and in the head of the uh, financial crisis, it was 3%. Demographics were a bit better then, but productivity was stronger. You know, if we're heading a bit more towards that environment, then it does start to change the forecast. But I think for the information that we have now, it's, it's very difficult to make that call. Jonathan, you mentioned uh, the currency when we talked there about Brexit, but can you talk a bit more broadly about the role currency have played in the assumptions and the period of adjustment? In terms of the uh, forecasts that are embedded in there, obviously the currency assumptions are very important for the uh, hedged returns and unhedged returns that we're calculating for the various base currencies. And that's the primary use of the currency assumptions in there. But as we know, currency can make a significant difference. And you know what we don't want to do is put a lot of volatility around those forecasts and make you know big calls necessarily although we want to have clearly a properly articulated view around where we think long-term equilibrium is and how we're going to transition to that because for the longer term forecasts where we are relative to equilibrium is, is going to be very important so as it sort of relates to this year's process we've come into this uh, situation having gone through a significant dollar rally which obviously has continued we've already talked about it a little bit with sterling and obviously that you know has been exacerbated by the brexit situation but also the euro is very weak the yen has weakened a great deal again in the last um, three or four months or so and so the dollar is starting off at a very strong position arguably relative to any kind of view around long-term equilibrium and so we have implicitly embedded into those uh, forecasts uh, for all the returns equities fixed income real assets alternatives you know where there's a currency hedging or unhedging argument we've embedded in forecasts which basically uh, are factoring in the dollar retracing over a period of time back towards a, a sensible value uh, in terms of long-term equilibrium so for the case of the euro, for example, that's around 125 to 130. Dollar yen actually is in that sort of 90 to 100 area, you know, so obviously a significant distance from where we are. They may look heroic, <laughs> you know, compared to where we are now, but given a 10-year horizon, I think they are a sensible view. 
So to close, maybe you guys could give me two or three things you're going to be watching over the next year or more and why? I'd say uh, the, the spread of fiscal stimulus elsewhere, this point about the dominance of monetary policy post-crisis, are we coming to an end in that? And whether you can see a coordinated or effective use of fiscal stimulus to affect these potential growth rates that we, we talked about, the structural move lower in potential growth. Can they affect that? And then the next question then becomes, uh, can central banks wind down QE? That's a risk. I'd say it's less of a risk in the sort of next year, but it's a risk that will grow through time and something that we will need to build into our framework. Uh, another one, uh, speaking to Jonathan about, uh, and linked actually to both Brexit and the Trump victory, uh, has been risks of rising populism. We have upcoming elections in Europe, you know, Netherlands, France and Germany, they make up over 70% of the GDP in the euro area, all having elections in the in, in the same year. And this rise in populism uh, is, a, is a key risk. What does that actually mean for return assumptions? Does that affect the risk premia that we have in, in fixed income? How do you price these risk premia in assets? Now, fundamentally, over a 10 to 15 year horizon, the rise of populism or, 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 or political risks should not be you know, immediately or directly factored into your models. But I think it's an innovation that will affect uh, our outlook for return. So populism, I'd say, is another another factor. And I think from my perspective, I, I never thought I'd be saying this, given what we've gone through <laughs> in, you know, in the post-financial crisis period. But um, I think the next couple of years look like they're going to be very interesting. And for all the reasons that you've mentioned there. And one of the issues around it is actually what's going to happen to inflation, because how policy responds, monetary policy that is, to the evolving environment is going to be incredibly important. If there is a general drive to run economies hot whilst we're going through what may be a significant expansion in the US, then obviously that means growth may be stronger in the short term, but it probably means that inflation and inflation volatility is going to be higher than we've had over the last five years where we've been talking about disinflation. And that has many effects because it obviously affects the general fixed income environment and the yield profile, but it affects volatility. It would affect EMD and our bright spots for fixed income as well. Alternatively, if central banks actually are going to stick rigidly to their inflation targeting process and are not going to tolerate any expectation of inflation for a period of time being above target materially, then actually that probably means, yes, you know, yields go up more sharply in the short term, but it means that inflation remains very well anchored and volatility will ultimately be lower and, and the situation will be more stable. And I think we'll, we're going to go through a process of discovery next year. You know, we're going to know a bit more exactly what policies are going to be brought in. We're going to know a bit more about the growth impact of that. And we'll see by central bank policy how we're going to see a response function. So when we're doing these assumptions in 2000. And 17 for 2018, as per usual, we could be in a, in, a, in a very different environment. Makes for some very interesting conversations, I'm sure. Yes. Just one other point, actually, to add to Jonathan's comment there. The one thing that we have as our underpinning force is productivity growth. And as uh, Jonathan said, the risks around how we're estimating that is, is key. So, for example, we had uh, Japanese GDP being revised over the last 10 to 15 years. 
higher. This is, you know, this is quite a, a meaningful innovation. And that's partly a mismeasurement of research and development and productivity growth. And I think next year, looking forward, we'll have to start building in some estimation of this mismeasurement point or uncertainty on productivity growth, which I think, you know, m- makes for interesting forecasting. And one final point for me, <laughs> I, think, I, I, I think we've got to be much better at forecasting China. Ultimately, I'm not saying that we don't forecast China very well, but I'm, what I mean is that it's growing in size relative to the rest of the world economy. You know, we've gone through a significant transition of sort of it not being, you know, as important 10 years ago to being obviously quite important now. You roll forward as every year goes by at the margin, it becomes incredibly important. And there are risks building there that the range of outcomes in China is very wide and opinion is very split. How that situation evolves is going to be incredibly important as well. It will become, you know, a more of a driving force of the global cycle and the global economy rather than a sort of a, a result of it, so to speak. So thank you both very much for your time today. Thanks. It's been great. Yes, thank you very much indeed. See you next year. Thank you for joining us today on JP Morgan Insights. If you found our insights useful, you can find more episodes on iTunes and on our website. Recorded on the 15th of December 2016. The views contained herein are not to be taken as an advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction. Nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions, and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production, but no warranty of accuracy is given, and no liability in respect of any error or omission is accepted. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision, and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks, The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yield may not be a reliable guide to future performance. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide. This communication is issued by the following entities. In the United Kingdom by J.P. Morgan Asset Management UK Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. In other EU jurisdictions by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe SARL. In Hong Kong by JF Asset Management Limited or J.P. Morgan Funds Asia Limited or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Asia Limited. In India by J.P. Morgan Asset Management India Private Limited. In Singapore by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Singapore Limited or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Singapore Private Limited. In Taiwan by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Taiwan Limited. In Japan by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Japan Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan. The Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type 2 Financial Instruments Firms Association, 
and the Japan Securities Dealers Association and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency. Registration number, Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, number 330. In Korea, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Korea Company Limited. In Australia, to wholesale clients only, as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001. CTH, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Australia Limited. ABN 5514-3832080. AFSL 376919. In Brazil, by Banco J.P. Morgan S.A. In Canada, for institutional clients' use only, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Canada, Incorporated, and in the United States, by J.P. Morgan Distribution Services, Incorporated, and J.P. Morgan Institutional Investments, Incorporated, both members of FINRA, SIPC, and J.P. Morgan Investment Management, Incorporated. In APAC, distribution is for Hong Kong, Taiwan, Japan, and Singapore. For all other countries in APAC, to intended recipients only. Copyright 2016, J.P. Morgan Chase Company. All rights reserved.